Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. You're listening to the We Podcast, where we speak, we grow, we rise. I'm your host, Sarah Moneris, and I'm passionate about creating community and providing a space for speaking authentic truth, growing together, and rising above challenges and into the full power of all we were created to be. This week on the We Podcast, my guest is Christina Schnellman. Let me just begin by saying that I was completely mesmerized by her story. Christina is a wife, mom of three boys, and entrepreneur. For years, she felt a tug at her heart that she was made for a larger purpose, but felt unsure of what direction she should take. She takes us through a course of events that led her to today and her ability to understand what she is indeed capable of. These events include her brother's survival of being a victim of the Columbine school shooting, all the way to December of 2016, when her mentally ill mom and brother disappeared from their homes in Colorado. It wasn't until six months later she received a life-changing phone call from a stranger informing her that her brother was living homeless in the streets of Santa Cruz, Bolivia. With her older brother by her side, Christina headed to search for her brother in hopes to return him and her mom home safely to the U.S. This journey forever marked her heart, and we are so blessed that she is sharing it with us. This is the longest episode I've ever done, and believe me, you'll want to listen all the way to the very end. So here we go. Here is my interview with Christina. Christina Schnellman. Christina, my guest this week, I'm super, super excited to talk with you. I was thinking about people that I wanted to interview, and I know from working with you a little bit, I've got to work with you in a, I guess, more more deeper, that doesn't, that's not, in a deeper way. (laughs) Yes. The last few weeks in a course, and So I've gotten to hear a little bit of your story and know that you have quite the story to tell and just am really excited to be able to provide a platform for you to be able to share that because I'm sure, well, I know there's so much more to it than what I know of and I can't wait to hear it. So I know that the listeners (laughs) will love it also. So, good. yeah, how are you feeling about I'm, being here? <laughs> I'm feeling good. Uh, obviously, you know, a little bit nervous, but I've done a lot of personal growth in the last, hmm, call it year and a half. Um, kind of was forced into that personal growth a little bit, um, but uh, has sent me in a direction that I know in my heart is where I'm supposed to be. And I've never been so sure of something in my life than that. I just don't know exactly what that looks like, right? Like all of us are on this journey and sometimes we get there faster. We find our purpose faster than others. But uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to be here. I feel really honored 
really that you asked me and that I could share because the one truth I have learned in the last year and a half is that um, these stories, these like experiences that have happened to me or in my life have, have gone on that no one's really benefited from me not sharing them. Mm. So I haven't benefited from not sharing them and other people haven't benefited because I hadn't been willing to share them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's kind of my truth, at least what rings true for me in 2017 and 18. So we'll see what the next few years bring. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I couldn't agree with you more. Gosh, how powerful it is to have this story, to have these experiences and to be able to help other people, I think, heal and move forward in their own lives. But that's amazing. Uh, It's kind of an amazing byproduct, (laughs) you know, (laughs) And uh, the first person who I think really heals is our own self. Right. I agree. Totally. I mean, you have to be open and vulnerable to that. Um, But if you are, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a a miraculous feeling, really. Like it's quite empowering. Um, Sure. Do you still feel hesitant at times or nervous? Cause you know, you've changed in a lot of ways and people around you, I think, sometimes need to adjust to that as well right mm-hmm. you're not exactly as they remember you you're in transition at least that's how I felt in the last year and a half is just being in this um, transition place so not just changing for me but you know changing for my husband and family and friends and them understanding where I'm headed or you know just kind of coping with what what's transpired and how that's affected me as a person, Mm -hmm. Uh, but all good, all good. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a true Testament. Good things can come from a lot of hurt. Mm -hmm. They a place of hurt. They really, really can, but it's all what you make of it. True. Very true. Yeah. And I think that's just such a good point. Our personal journeys affect the people around us and Yeah, I can just completely resonate with what you're saying, because I feel like I was where you are. I mean, I had this, and I talk about it in my birthday podcast. I think that's two podcasts ago, so 25, uh, about the the point where I said, like, I'm done people-pleasing. I'm done living my life for everybody else. I'm done uh, telling you I like something when I really don't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm done going and having Mexican food if I don't want to. (laughs) Well, you know, I feel like a little bit like we could have been sisters. (laughs) Uh, because I feel like your life a lot aligns kind of how mine did. Uh, And, you know, I'm transitioning through and I, what's nice is I can see you on the other side entirely. Early, um, and I'm about three quarters of the way there, um, or maybe even a little closer than that. I should give myself a little bit more credit. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I I agree with you, but that and then that, that's a that's a hard habit to break. Mm-hmm. When you're a people pleaser your whole life, and you have 
weighed so much on other people's thoughts and feelings and emotions. Literally before this last year, that was almost how every decision of mine was made. Mm-hmm. Was rarely, I and mean, there was probably some cases or rare cases or, you know, when I wanted to eat a chocolate cake for dessert, sure, I was the one driving that, not, you know, the waiter necessarily. So, but when you've done that your whole life, it, it takes a lot of willpower to break that. Mm-hmm. And I always used to tell my husband, I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm not an addictive personality, right? Like I don't get addicted to this or that. And I was always associating it with uh, substances or things like that. But it kind of dawned on me last year, actually, that no, my addiction has always been to get people to like me Mm. or to please them. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So actually, I really do understand addiction (laughs) really, really well. (laughs) Yeah. Just in a different capacity, you know? Mm-hmm. Wow, wow, I've never heard it put that way before. And I think that's so powerful. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You have, you have to break yourself of it. You have to like find self-worth. You you have to do a lot of internal searching. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah. And and then it's easy to get sucked back into that too. Like I just spent a whole bunch of time the last couple of weeks with family who wants to continually like put me back into that box because that's where I belong, right? According to a lot of the roles that I've played. And so when you have a lot of people who want to continually put you back there because it's easier for them if you just continue to agree with everything (laughs) and then they're like what the heck is happening (laughs) yeah and it's hard it's 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 hard you have to combat that so heavily because you can just I I could feel like how easy it is to just get sucked back in because you don't want to Mm -hmm. fight it I guess well, yes. Well, and it's because for so long, your measurement, or at least my measurement of self-worth was dependent on someone else's happiness mm-hmm. or someone else's content with my, or discontent with my behavior. Yeah. And it is so easy when you're around those same old people to have those old feelings of, you know, people pleasing, you know, I, I don't know what other word to, to use to describe it. It's, it's, it's a very, you know, I'm sure it's like an attic walking into, um, I don't know, like a liquor store or something mm-hmm. you know, in a way. I mean, for me, it was that, it was that I, I hate to play down an addiction because I do realize those people have a, a chemical, you know, chemical things that go on in their bodies and things like that, um, that also, you know, physically play into their, um, their uh, addiction. But it, uh, it was very much like that for me because it was so ingrained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I can totally identify with that. So let's talk about why it was so ingrained. So <laughs> 
why don't we hop into your story because there is a reason for this i don't think you're just i i don't think we are just born this way like i mm -hmm. i think people are born maybe more compassionate or they have characteristics that maybe allow this to happen e easier but i don't think we're just born being a people pleaser or born being codependent or all of those things you know that can exist in our relationships so uh yeah i mean i'm i'm excited to hear kind of your journey and what's brought you through to where you are today sure so i was born to a large family um, i have six brothers i have five older and the joke in my family always has been that if my mom had had me sooner, she might not have had so many children. <laughs> oh. So um, she wanted a girl so, so bad. Oh, I mean, okay. so desperately um, that she went through extreme lengths to have me. She at one point, um, she had her tubes tied, actually. This is kind of a funny story. She had her tubes tied after my older brother. Um, my older brother, uh, my dad was like, okay, we're done, right? But my dad came from a Catholic family, so he was used to big families. Five boys, we're done. My dad was a truck driver so at the time. So while he was away, she had her tubes reversed. Oh. And then... I was the miracle baby, the miracle baby from, from that. And so for years, I, I don't actually know when my dad found out the truth, but, um, you know, from the moment I was born, I was a very, I was a big deal to this family, right? I was the girl that my mom, mom really, really wanted. Mm -hmm. And so I think why I ended up, you know, a prime reason why I ended up kind of the way I was is I had six, six brothers because I had one after. Um, my mom had a, a, li a little boy after me. But I had six, five brothers, older brothers that doted on me. And my mom doted on me. And I was her, in a lot of ways, was kind of like a doll to her. You know, like mm -hmm. somebody that could dress up and take shopping and do all those things things with me but that she could you know kind of had control she was she had had a very controlling nature to her and so from a very early age it was just kind of ingrained in me from I mean I can't even remember at what age but I never wanted to disappoint her mm -hmm. and I always knew what the expectation was for the most part when you get to your teen years, you know, you start to push away from that a little bit. I think even healthy teens do that. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was quite a bit of resistance and struggle in my, my teen years between my mom and I. As a little girl, I was very much attached to her, uh, very much anxious. Um, oh, I love my mama, you know, I loved her so much. And I thought, I really thought based on the interaction between her and I that I couldn't survive without her. Mm -hmm. That I couldn't be anything without her. Um, mm. and, and then that all that losing her was always at risk. 
always at risk. Right. Yeah. She was, you know, growing up, she was uh, mentally, she was mentally unstable. Um, she was in my high school year, she was diagnosed bipolar. When she took medicine, she was much better. It was, it was much, much better, but she didn't like taking it. You know, she, my mom has the ability to connect with strangers in a grocery store in an instant. She has this boisterous personality that can be, that can just light up a room, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. But then those lows, those really dark moments where she was a little bit of a hypochondriac, like she would worry that she was going to die. And so that's where the fear of losing her always came in, is that I, I from, I think the first time I remember her telling me she was going to die was about three or four years old. And she was preparing me for her death mm. uh, because she was in so much pain. She had injured her back and she was in so much pain. So legitimately she had something she was dealing with. Right. Um, but she, she, I think that that root of me, people pleasing, I think it comes from that relationship with her and wanting to make sure that just because I choose something different or that she doesn't like, I'm not going to lose her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that sounds silly, right? Cause you think about it logically later on in life and you're like, well, that doesn't sound right. Like, you know, you can still make choices and people are going to live right. But as a child, I, I weighed so much on her protecting me. Mm-hmm. And she actually did. She protected me from a lot of um, abuse that happened in our home growing up. And I think that part of that neurotic behavior she had was because she was maybe aware of some of those things and she mm-hmm. didn't want me to be exposed to that. So in some way she, she kind of protected or guarded me from some of that, but the aftermath was just kind of, um, you know, me people pleasing which you know it's not a horrible quality I suppose but to have a little bit of that mm-hmm. but I, I was a bit of an extreme case of that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well it's a lot of pressure to be born into and I and it's like almost like you're an extension of her rather than your own mm-hmm. person yep absolutely that 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 defines it really well actually Mm-hmm. Um, I was her doll. My brothers still say it to this day. Like you were mom's doll. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime you would try to separate from that, and I know this personally, this is where we're, we should be sisters. <laughs> <laughs> anytime you try to separate from that, there's, there's a consequence in a sense. Either oh, Mm-hmm. Like what for me, it was like withdrawal of love or I was a terrible person or I, I don't know. There's some, some sort of consequence to mm-hmm. regain that control. Mm-hmm. Oh, everything had. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, and usually for me, it was the loss of her that I was going to not lose her. Like she was going to shun me lose her like she was going to die or take her life or you see like so it was and um it was manipulative mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Just to, like you said to regain that control 
And it could, I mean, it was with major things and it was with minor things. I dyed my hair brunette when I was a sophomore in high school at a cheerleading party. (laughs) (laughs) And um, she lost it. Uh It wasn't just big things. It was little things too. It was just, it was, and it wasn't, it wasn't really the little thing. It was that underlying, do I have control over this person? Right. That signified that she didn't. Mm -hmm. Totally. So yeah, we've, we've chatted a bit about how um, our moms seemed somewhat similar in, in a lot of ways. But your mom was diagnosed bipolar, and in your dad, was he around or? Yeah, you know, my, my other, my, it's funny, when you come from a large family, you get, what's funny is that you get a, a completely different set of parents, right? Like my older brothers remember my dad being one way, and my mom being one way, and then the younger ones remember him being very different. And so like my, my brothers, none of them think that we had the same dad, although we did, we all come from the same father, mother, everything. <laughs> um, so my dad growing up, so my, my, my dad's lot, my dad was a pretty heavy drinker. And on the day I was born, my dad had pretty much his last drink of alcohol. Um, and now years late, fast forward years later, he would have a beer occasionally, but he really stopped drinking when I was born. And so Mark and I had a father who was a lot of fun, who played with us, took us swimming all the time, tetherball. He was really a great, great dad. And he balanced my mom in a lot of ways and tried to mitigate, I guess, the damage for many years and, and tried to just level things out and kind of be the peacekeeper. So mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for my dad because he held on to that relationship really only to benefit us. I don't think it, well, it didn't benefit him at all health-wise to, to live as he did. Um, but I think he did it because he, he knew that it would have been difficult to not have some sort of balance in the home just because my mom was so erratic in her decision making. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a significant difference. So how did things progress? How how did, as you got older, I know things kind of happened. I don't want to give away. I mean, I don't want to. So, I mean, it's, quite honestly, it's such a long story. I mean, to shorten it, it a, a series of events kind of took place. So, um, Mark, Mark, growing up, had some learning disabilities. My younger brother, Mark, and um, my mom struggled so much with my older brothers in private or in public school, behaviorally and with rebellion, what quote unquote rebellion, what she called rebellion, which. I can attest there were some rebellious natures there from my older brothers, but um, for sure. Uh, So she, um, she didn't want Mark and I to go to public school. She wanted us to go to private school 
she thought that would solve the issues of getting involved in things we shouldn't get involved in. So Mark and I were in private schools. Well, Mark had a learning disability and the tools and resources that a private school has for learning disabilities is really was at the time quite minimal compared to public school. Mm-hmm. So each year he just fell farther and farther behind, right? And at one point she finally became comfortable with putting Mark into Columbine High School. And this was in 99. Hmm. So she enrolls Mark into Columbine because she felt comfortable with the office staff being Christians. My cousin was a senior. My cousin and I are the same year, uh, are born the same year, graduated the same year. My cousin was a senior at Columbine. So my mom felt comfortable and she knew she needed to do something different for Mark in terms of learning. So she enrolls him in Columbine and I want to say five or six weeks later, Mark was um, shot at Columbine. Oh my goodness. So, you know, it, it, um, it impacted my family, our family dynamics in a huge way. There was so much discord between, you know, what we thought, what some people thought should be done, what others thought should be done. And that's kind of when my parents, I think my dad knew that it wasn't ever, it was not going to be forever for them. Like he, you know, they had so much um, resentment towards each other and just the relationship was not solid. And so I think my dad is kind of on that wavelength of, I don't know that this is going to be forever, but when Columbine happened, um, everyone kind of pulled together as much as they could. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what my mom wanted to do with Mark's situation was very different than what the rest of the family wanted to do with Mark's with helping him. So my mom, unfortunately, I think she just saw it as kind of her ticket to I don't know if it was to fame, to fortune, mm. to um, kind of giving her her sense of who she was. Her and Mark very much identified with being a victim of Columbine. Mm. And my dad and, and this other side of the family, you know, didn't really want that path. We didn't feel like that was what was going to help Mark learn how to cope with the tragedy that that was and then the terror it was to be quite honest. I mean, it was very scary. It was scary to show up at the hospital and his name is under an alias because they didn't know at the time what, um, who was involved and if there were other people out there, um, that, you know, would want to finish things off or, you know, or were involved. And so they were trying to protect the security of the patients. Right. So he had an alias at the hospital. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, you know, it's very like when that, when, I know it sounds small, but like when you show up to visit your brother for the first time and they're not even using his name on the file or the door, you know, it's, it's kind of like, Oh my gosh, like it really registers with you. Um, what a sick situation you're in. Mm-hmm. at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So at this time you were being home, homeschooled or no, you were in a private school in the area? I was in a private school actually about an hour north of where we lived at the time. Okay. So Mark, Mark was in the Columbi at Columbine. We lived a few blocks from Columbine and I drove cause I didn't want to switch schools. It was my senior year yeah. and I drove an hour um, to go to school. And so the day that he was shot, I was at school. So that's kind of the, the start of what, you know, do I want to say it caused all of this? Well, no, you can never say that, but I think it definitely catapulted things between my parents and our family mm -hmm. into, into different directions. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, gosh, like a life-changing, huge, yeah, huge, right. devastating, traumatic right. event. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you fast forward, I guess I would say um, 10 years, you know, her, my mom and Mark lived kind of dependent on one another for the next 10 years or call it. And he didn't, he didn't get the therapy that he needed. Um, he, they toured the country. Um, he spoke about, he spoke to churches. He spoke in front of Congress about mostly just being an advocate for, I don't know what you call the drugs, like Ritalin and um, like all the ADHD medicines. He really kind of, they, they, my mom and him took the focus of trying to, I don't know what, how to describe it. Um, like advocating for the use of the? Yeah. Advocating for, for not using. Like, oh, okay. I wouldn't call it advocating, I guess, you know, just speaking out against it. Like they really felt. Like that protesting? That, yes. They felt that that's what caused the series of events at Columbine. Oh. Um, and during that time, and, and my mom has always been somebody who's been lent to conspiracy theories and things of that sort. Even as a child, I remember that, um, you know, she would kind of focus in on those types of things and really investigate those things and find a lot of interest in that kind mm -hmm. of stuff, mm -hmm. which is because those things cause a lot of anxiety. So I don't know why someone would want to invest a whole lot of time in, in something that causes that much anxiety, but she always did. And at the time Columbine happened, they ended up getting involved with a gentleman who uh, was a community member who is a conspiracy theorist. And he divulged some information to Mark, whether it was accurate or not, I don't think. And so Mark, there's kind of this series of people that come into Mark's life, including this Ron guy, and they transpire this how the situation ended up being with Harrison Klebold and that Mark ends up being what they called a whistleblower. So that Mark, that Mark divulged information about the situation at Columbine and why it happened that Ron gave him that Ron made up in his mind. I'm not exactly sure. And so Mark ends up being, he, he starts to feel as though uh, the government is after him. Mm -hmm. 
this is all kind of weird information. So I know you need, you can edit information out. So it's hard to explain without just flat out saying it. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I mean, it's a, I, I'll just come out and say it and then you do with, it, with whatever you want with this, <laughs> this section because it doesn't make sense and it just seems way too cuckoo. But Ron believed that Harrison Klebold in their runnings with police in prior in the prior year that they were raped by the Jefferson County Police Department. So anyways, Ron was convinced that that had happened and that there were there was significant proof in these drawings that Harrison Klebold had done and so that Ron felt strongly that all of this was part of a conspiracy theory that Jefferson County was involved, was actually involved and knew that this was going to happen at Columbine High School and they did nothing to prevent it. So he made some pretty bold statements and accusations Mm -hmm. and had convinced my brother that that's what happened. And here you have this 16-year-old young man who has had a lot of struggles with learning disabilities and just some emotional issues because of some sexual abuse at home and things that went on at home. Mm. And who is very, not gullible, but, you know, very easily influenced. Mm -hmm. And my mom grows an attachment to Ron and, you know, all these nice things Ron is doing for them, you know, helping them with, medical all sorts of little things Ron was doing to help you know the kind of the situation and so Mark goes to the media with this information and from that moment on I mean Ron had him convinced that he was now a whistleblower and that the government was going to be after him for it Mm. so you know and he was nearly killed at Columbine. I mean, he lost so much blood. He was laying on the football field. He, thankfully, a Jefferson County police officer ignored the orders and pulled onto the football field and threw his body along with several other kids into the back of his patrol car. Mm-hmm. And he saved, he saved Mark's life doing it. Wow. He saved Mark's life. I mean, he would have bled to death. I mean, he had lost so much blood. He was shot eight times. Oh my gosh. Through the upper chest cavity. When I was sitting in ICU, because we were all taking turns, my mom was a, a mess. She was having such a hard time as any parent. Oh my gosh. In this situation, mm-hmm. how awful it would be to ha- get that phone call and to be sitting in an ICU unit. So I stayed overnight with Mark the first night and when the doctors came in, the surgeons that came in that operated on him, they were just baffled. They, I mean, literally, they just said to me, like, we do not have any faith association. We are not religious. But we cannot explain why your brother is alive. Mm. And if even if he's alive, he should be paralyzed. We cannot explain it. Mark was shot with a nine millimeter gun. It passed through his upper chest cavity between eight and nine times. They didn't know for sure. Wow. And it literally passed between a nine millimeter spot between his spine and his heart. Wow. Crazy. 
right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he was supposed to live. Mm-hmm. He was. So here he goes through this traumatic event. Then you introduce my mom has paranoia, has, you know, conspiracy theory tendencies. And then you introduce Mr. Ron to the picture, who is even more so that way. And he's convincing my mom and Mark even further into, um, you know, because my dad never played into the conspiracy theory things with my mom. He was always like, oh, Donna, it's fine. You know, you know, mm-hmm. you're not thinking of this. It always was the logic, right? And so, um, you know, that that's kind of the, the big event that leads later on in life to the, the bigger event that happened about a year ago um, or a little over a year ago. But anyways, like anything goes untreated, you know, Mark kind of goes without treatment without help and he's around people that are really um condoning this this unhealthy belief about the world Mm -hmm. yeah i mean even though there are terrible things that happen to people every day that doesn't mean that everything everybody's working against you always Right. right so Anyways, you know, several years pass and, and Mark, Mark is now diagnosed schizophrenic or schizophrenia paranoia. I, I don't know if that's, you know, I think, are we, like you talked about, are you a product of your environment or is there some genetic element? And I think it may have been some of both for him. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but. Um, I think that's the classic, like, forever argument among, you know, psychologists and child development professionals mm -hmm. is, is it nurture and nature? And I think it's both. I I think, I think you're born with things that you, so you're like predisposed to them and whether or not they come out a lot of times depends on your environment and the mm-hmm. things that you've experienced, but I know that there's also a strong genetic link to schizophrenia and yep. bipolar. So, yep. Mm-hmm. yep. And so there may have been some genetics there that worked against him as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, you combine that with a major traumatic event like that. And then on top of that, a mother who's very paranoid. I mean, there's lots mm-hmm. of different elements kind of piled on each other mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep absolutely yeah so you know you know about t- I would say about 10 years and maybe a little bit sooner than that we really started to see Mark's kind of the breakdown of him mentally and his ability to cope in society he um you know at one point was pretty eloquent could speak pretty well spoke in front of you know, churches and in front of large groups of people sharing a story, you know, maintained his hygiene well and that kind of dissipated and he became more fearful, you know, and that showed in his physical appearance and his ability to communicate to others. And that's, it was hard to see that. You know, mm-hmm. it was hard to see. You, you felt we felt powerless. I think most of us did, um, protective of him because he's our little brother. 
but we felt powerless in a lot of ways because we didn't, you know, we didn't have the choice to help him to, to get him help mm-hmm. to get him what he needed initially. I think I, I you know, uh, it was difficult. It was heartbreaking, really quite, quite wrenching because mm-hmm. I think there were days that, oh my gosh, not just days. There were years that were just a very dark place for him. One of the first times we went, uh, the first time he was hospitalized in Pueblo, it was, it was eerie to see where he was dwelling in his mind, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and how, how impactful, obviously, you know, somebody's, you know, if they go through something traumatic like that, it's impactful, right? But it's not always initially that you see the impact, the greatest impact, right? It's kind of as time has progressed. And it had been quite a while since we really had spent a significant amount of time with Mark because my mom and him were traveling so much, kind of like gypsies in a way, just kind of going wherever the money took them. And so a lot of us had not seen him in so long that to see him in that really dark place that he was dwelling mentally, mm-hmm. um, it was hard. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to say it. It mm-hmm. just was really, really empty feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So... Had he spent time then in and out of the state hospital or? Yeah, kind of from, from there on out, he was in and out a lot. He would, you know, the medicine, medicine really helps him to function and kind of level things out and really bring those delusions, you know, bring them, bring them back in, right? Reel them back in. And Mm -hmm. so but it's, it's always been a challenge, I think, for him. And, and I think maybe a lot of people in his situation with schizophrenia, paranoia, is to find that balance of where you don't feel like a zombie. Mm-hmm. You still feel like you have some personality in life and you can enjoy things. Yeah. But you have to deal with the delusions and the fear that comes from being paranoid schizophrenic. Yeah. I mean, it it is intense, his fear and his belief about even people he loves and cares about and know that he really should know that love and care about him, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing with that and you don't have anything to help you deal with that, that, what a hard place to be in, right? You always think somebody's coming around the corner for you. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, right? Mm-hmm. That's no way to live. That is no. no way to live life for sure. Right. So, yeah, he was in and out a lot. And eventually, uh, we, my dad, I don't know how he went about it, but he filed with the court for guardianship over Mark. So we had, we went to court. Um, my, I went with my dad. Raleigh was just a baby. He was like 12 months old. My mom had never met Raleigh. Mm. And or I was about 18 months old, never met Raleigh. And we went to court and it was my dad and myself and my older, my older brother, the next one up. 
and um, we had to testify against my mom. Yeah, and the judge, it was hard. It was mm-hmm. hard. It was the right thing to do, but it was still yeah. hard. It right. Was. It was in the courtroom. You know, I think it had a huge impact on her, but it was the right thing to do because we all had to pull together and advocate for Mark. We had to. Yeah. And so my dad ended up obtaining guardianship over Mark because the judge just felt so confidently in the last 10 years that his, he's just gotten worse and worse and worse. Not that that, that was entirely my mom's fault, but definitely the lifestyle they were living was not helpful to his, to his, um, healing. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a huge change when Mark, my, my dad got guardianship over Mark. I think it really, um, I think it impacted my mom in a lot of negative ways, but I think that the benefit was, that Mark then could get some help that he needed. So Mm -hmm. my goodness. So this is all kind of leading up. This is kind of the long, you know, all this backstory to really my story and kind of what has changed for me, like what's been most impactful for me, I guess, in recent, I mean, obviously we all have experiences in life that were like, well, that was impactful and that was impactful and everything kind of pieces together and, you know, molds you or define, you know, makes its, it makes its mark on you. And, um, but all of that led up to a moment, um, a little over a year ago. Well, actually almost two years ago is when it started. Um, my, my mother my mother, after Mark's guardianship, she just went downhill. It took a little while, but she just went further and further downhill when she didn't have Mark to be codependent on mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And didn't have her and she didn't have him. And that really changed things for her. I think mental state. Mm-hmm. And she ended up unconscious at some point in Las Vegas of all places. She had a friend in Vegas. Um, so she ends up hospitalized in Vegas and not really in good shape. And my oldest brother decided to drive out there and pick her up. And he took her home to Colorado Springs and she lived with him for a long time. And, and she, my mom had kind of burned bridges with a lot of her kids, right? We all felt, uh, I don't know. I'm just going to say it. A lot of anger and resentment towards her mm-hmm. for Mark, for Mark, really not really for ourselves individually. There was that piece because we all had that right growing up, mm-hmm. but it was more this, like she would not let Columbine go. She, it was how she identified Mark. It's how she helped him to identify himself as mm-hmm. his self. Yeah. You know, it was very hard. And so we were all very, very upset and angry and resentful towards her. Mm-hmm. And so my older brother was the only one, I think, at the time who maybe didn't feel that way. But he tried to take care of her. And he had a difficult time because he couldn't really take care, good care of himself. And so um, I remember getting the phone call 
from my second oldest brother and he says, okay, uh, Sonny and Chad just visited mom at Todd's in Colorado Springs and they dropped mom off at my house. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, she doesn't look good. Things aren't right. We need to get her help. Like, that was the first we had heard. She was just in a really bad state. She was completely catatonic, would not eat, would not drink, Mm. wasn't speaking. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Like it was, I was like, when I saw a picture of her, I didn't recognize her. Mm. That's Mm -hmm. how much she had lost and how much she had changed. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what your mind, like what you feed your mind, how that affects you physically. Mm -hmm. Or in a lot of ways, not just physically, but it really can impact your physical. person and so we ended up um we took her to a hospital she was on the behavioral health floor and she ended up getting transferred to boulder county behavioral underwent a lot of therapy there a lot of intense therapy there but we slowly saw her start to come out of this catatonic state very Mm -hmm. very gradually and I had to work really really hard to try to find an assisted living that would take on the mental health component Mm -hmm. and I was fortunate after making a lot of phone calls I found a facility in in Loveland as a recommendation from some connections I had made in Loveland which is so bizarre that I had this connection in Loveland and um they were willing to take it on this blessed, this wonderful lady at this facility was like, I had a brother who was bipolar. She's like, I know exactly what you're dealing with. And Mm -hmm. I know, I, I know I can help your mom. And so she, we, we got her accepted. They happened the small little tiny place that accepts Medicare and Medicaid, which not many places do. Yeah had a spot for her and it felt like it was meant to be right. Mm-hmm. Continued some intense therapy in Boulder. I would go pick her up once a week, twice a week initially, then once a week, drive her down to Boulder, bring her back, which is incredibly intense to take her to those treatments. It was electric shock therapy. Mm-hmm. Very difficult to, to, to see you know, but it, 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 initial impact on her body, but then it just helped to reset her, mm-hmm. like definitely progressed her in the, it put her in the right direction. And we started to see her come back. We started to see our mom come back. We started to see her care about her hair and the woman who never left the house without lipstick and mascara on. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it was good to see some of those things about her come back to life he Mm. just looked lifeless before that Mm. and so we thought hey we're all squared away right like you know she was always 
my mom's always been a little bit discontent in every situation. She's always like, oh, we move into a brand new house. And she's like, oh, I don't think I like this house that much, you know, mm-hmm. or she buys a new pair of shoes. She'd wear them once. She'd be like, oh, I hate those shoes. You know, like my mom has always <laughs> had this like discontent in life. Right. So she, she would verbalize her discontent about where she was in this assisted living but not because they were treating her bad. No, everybody was nice. She had food, but she didn't like the food. You know, she had all these things that were really great and going for her. And I was seeing her really consistently. She was getting to see the boys and Mark, we didn't have a relationship prior to this, right? She had never been around my children prior to this because mm-hmm. the relationship had just reached its breaking point. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking, oh my gosh, thank goodness, like this is going smoothly, right? Right. And so then on Christmas Eve, there's always a very big party my aunt throws on my dad's side of the family, a big Catholic family. And we always get together and we have spaghetti on at dinner on Christmas Eve. (laughs) (laughs) How else do you feed 150 people and not go broke? (laughs) You serve spaghetti, right? Yeah. (laughs) And it's always a good time. And I'm on my way down there and I get a call from my dad and my brother is missing. Mark, my youngest brother is gone from his group home. So at this point he's, he's out of facilities. He's in a group home. He's getting therapies, you know, getting out to see family. My dad would go see movies with them once a week. Um, My brothers would go visit him. And Mark's missing and he's been missing for a couple of days and no one at the facility knows where he went. And they didn't think to call my dad until my dad was trying to get a hold of them and had called the place. And they're like, we haven't seen Mark. We thought he was with your family or with you. Oh Oh my my gosh. What? My dad calls me in a panic. Right. And I said, Okay, well, my mom, the last day I'd heard from my mom, which was a couple of days prior, she had told me, I'd like to go and stay with my friend Denise for a few days, and then I'll be back and I can go to the Christmas. We had planned to spend Christmas Eve with my dad and then Christmas with my mom, right? And um, so she's supposedly staying with the friend, Denise. And... I call courtyard and she said, yeah, she checked out. She uh, checked out a few days ago and uh, we think she signed herself out. And I'm like, okay. And I told my dad on the phone, I said, you know what? They're together. I don't think you need to worry. (laughs) This is what I told my dad at the time. I don't think you need to worry. I think they're together. Now come to think of it, like that's when he should have been worrying is because they were together because what transpired or what we figure out had transpired over the course of the next several weeks was unimaginable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I tell people this story and they're like, I feel like you're living a movie. And I was like, <laughs> I do too. <laughs> and I want to, I want to watch the movie. I don't really want to be in the movie. <laughs> And you want to get the money for the movie, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, seriously. Oh, my gosh. You deserve something out of it, right? So 
Totally. <laughs> so everyone at these facilities is beside themselves. My entire family is beside themselves. My dad is like, oh, my, I mean, nervous wreck, right? Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. I thought at the time, okay, I think they booked it to Mexico or to Canada. <laughs> like, I think they wouldn't, they would only drive across one of the borders, right? Like they're not going to go out outside of that. And so we obviously had the file missing persons reports, uh, one for Mark, one for my mom. They took a bunch of information, but a key person in all of this was the detective that I met in Loveland. Ex wonderful, wonderful guy really just wanted to help me figure out what happened. Where mm -hmm. did she go? Are they safe? Like, yeah, we just need to know, are you safe? Are you have what you need? Like, what yeah. do you, what? Yeah. Right. And so working with that detective, he had an FBI contact that was able to kind of help with some information. So I want to say month, like a month later, maybe a little less than a month later, we determine that they had met up with Ron, mm. Ron, the guy way back, Columbine, right? Mm -hmm. And they had flown to Miami and then they had flown to Bolivia. And I was like, okay, where's Bolivia? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I literally, I, I didn't know where Bolivia was. Yeah, it's in South America. For <laughs> anyone who's listening who doesn't know where Bolivia is, it is in South America, between I think Colombia and Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Super safe part of the world, I think. Well, I don't yeah. know. I don't know about that, but <laughs> um, you know. And so we're a month in of them missing. Hmm. Oh, so bizarre. Uh, you know, and obviously we're all worried. They've probably gone off their meds cold turkey, which is not good. Not right. good for anybody if you're taking antidepressants or anything to help regulate. You know, you need to be under the guidance of a doctor. Like we knew that that was going to be, you know, that, that they wouldn't be taking their meds. They didn't take any other meds with them. So, so. I get a call from a Bolivia number one day. I'm on my way getting ready to go to work and it's a doctor in Bolivia in La Paz and he spoke very broken English. And, but the, the gist of what I got from what he said is that my mom had been there at his hospital for a month mm -hmm. that went we arrived there, she was not speaking, eating, or drinking. So she was catatonic again. She had some heart arrhythmia issues. She had some bacterial issues. She was very, very sick. Hmm. And that they had nursed her back to health somewhat enough to get her to talk, and she was able to give them my phone number. And in Bolivia, so in and that she had about an $8,000 medical bill hmm. and that in order for her to be released from this hospital, she had to pay first because in Bolivia, 
you don't leave the hospital without paying. They don't release you without you paying. Wow. A month for $8,000. That's like, yeah. Wow. That was, that I'm was like all thinking the how much the bill would be here after a month. <laughs> I know, right? But you, still, exactly. $8,000 is, that's wild to like be hit with that. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, his initial question, of course, is, you know, they've been treating her, they've been helping her, um, is, can you pay this bill for mm-hmm. her? And I was like, well, no, I don't have $8,000, but what, what's good, you know, it was kind of bizarre because I hadn't talked to her in over a month. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, who's, is anyone there with her? And um, he said, yes, there had been a gentleman by the name of Ron, but he hadn't seen him in quite some time. And so, and so at this point, I'm like, there's no one else there with her. He said, no. So now we don't know where Mark is. Well, we know he's with Ron, probably somewhere in La Paz, right? Hmm. And so, you know, he says to me, well, I've asked Ron if I could contact the embassy and Ron keeps telling me no, but now that I haven't seen Ron, uh, are you okay with me contacting the U S embassy? And I said, absolutely. Because I'm on this end worrying that is she really in the hospital? Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, now we know that she was, but you know, you're wondering, has she been a part of a human trafficking incident? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things, you know, that, that were kind of running through my head, um, at the time, but he contacts the consulate in La Paz and she, uh, ended up visiting my, with my mom and going there to see her. And, you know, the plan when I talked to my mom on the phone was, Hey mom, what were were you going to do? Like live in Bolivia the rest of your life? And she said, yes. And I was like, well, where? Oh, Ron had negotiated for us to live on a farm. And, you know, to most people, that would probably be alarming to hear your mom say that, right? Mm-hmm. For me, it, my, it, it was like, oh, of course, that makes complete sense to my mom because my mom always counted on other people to do things for her. Mm-hmm. And so she was very trusting of Ron to execute all of this. And she wanted her and Mark to be together again, be away, be able to see each other. And they, you know, and, you know, I think she had it in her, in her brain that that things would just work out just fine, that they were able to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. Not, not remembering what the prior year looked like for her and how long it took her because she had no recollection of what, what happened. She didn't. I mean, she would get mad at us. No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't 115 pounds. She would get mad at us. No, no, I wasn't. You know? And I'm like, no mom, you, you really were. And you, you wouldn't eat a pancake. And (laughs) like, I couldn't get you, you know, no, she didn't believe it. Right. Cause her, her brain wasn't there. Right. She wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. anyways, so she's in the hospital in La Paz, the consulate convinces her 
you know, hey, Ron hasn't been here. You don't, and, and, and my mom's like, you're right, and I haven't seen Mark, and the whole point of me coming here was so that Mark and I could um, be together, um, so you're right, I don't want to be here anymore. The concert's like, fine, I will get all the paperwork together. I think you're well enough to fly. We'll check with the doctors. We'll get an escort, and we will, U.S. Embassy will help you to fly back to America. So consulate leaves becomes a holiday weekend in Bolivia like their carnival time consulate comes back on Tuesday with a paperwork for my mom to sign Ron had happened to visit that weekend and had brought Mark and he convinces her to stay mm. and she refuses to sign the paperwork to come home and so the hospital that Doctors are really angry, right? Because we were going to try to negotiate a payment plan for the medical bill. Mm -hmm. I was going to agree to that. They're upset. Ron gets involved, hires an attorney, contacts the human rights activist group, um, raises a bunch of ruckus that they held her against her will, that they they treated her without consent, even though the hotel staff where they were staying is who found her unconscious and took her to the hospital and nobody was at the hotel, the maid staff. And, um, and so he convinces her to stay and I'm on the phone and she's like, I'm not coming home. And the hospital releases her based on all the chaos that is caused with the human rights group and his attorney. Mm. So I'm trying to think um, months go by. I mean, that was at what the end of Jan early February, end of January. So February goes by March goes by towards the end of March. I make a phone call to the mom because the, to my mom, because my, the doctor in Bolivia was still trying to contact us for money for her bill. And I said, you know, I think in good faith, you should pay them something. And, you know, she sounded relatively fine on the phone. I gave her some bank account information of hers that I had. And I said, it's your money. So, you know, it's not mine, but you know, here's your information because you didn't take any of this with you. And so She's, I ask her how Mark's doing. And she says to me, oh, he's doing great. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, well, can I talk to him? Is he there? And she's like, yeah, yeah, he's here. You could talk to him. And so Mark picks up the phone and he says, hey, Tina. And I'm like, hey, Mark, how, how, how are you? He's like, I'm good. And I was thinking, man, you know what? This is kind of a relief because at, at this point I had not at all talked to Mark since mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And in his voice, I felt this exuberance and felt this like excitement. Right. And I could, you know, it was good to hear his voice. And I just trying to make conversation and say to him, well, what, what are you doing? Oh, we're, uh, uh, I'm like, where are you going today? He's like, Oh, I'm going to be executed. And I was like, Mark, what, Mark, what, where are you going? Oh, they're going to execute me today. And it went from like, 
like he said it in a perky way the first time and the second time I mean my ears heard what they heard but then the second time I could tell I could tell that he was right back in that dark place mm -hmm. that I had seen him in Pueblo mm -hmm. and I had this phone call at work I was at work at the time and I had stepped in the conference room to take this call and the blood drained from my face Hmm. because I just couldn't help him. Hmm. I was thousands of miles away. There was no way I was going to be able to get to him. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Mark, that's not going to happen today. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it is. And so I, you know, finished up the conversation pretty quickly with him and asked him to pass the phone to the gentleman in the car who whose phone it belonged to. And this guy I haven't mentioned up until this point, but there was a gentleman there in Bolivia that had contacted me via Facebook and sending me kind of messages and stuff about Mark and my mom, who is a coyote in Bolivia. He basically helps people seek what he calls refuge political refuge from their country if he thinks if you feel you're being persecuted by your country mm. so he had helped my mom and my brother file file for refugee status in Bolivia mm. and so I had a lot of eerie back and forth conversations in face in Facebook with him in those months kind of in between when I had spoken to my mom when she was in the hospital and then him and he was a very odd odd character and I don't know quite what his intent was he insisted that he was trying to help them and at one point asked me for money on multiple occasions but so anyways I, I get David on the phone and I say David because David's basically toting them around town you know, getting, you know, introducing them to people and things. And I was like, David, you really, you have to listen to me. So I just now asked Mark, where are you, where he was going today? And he told me he's going to be executed. And David, just like this, like perfectly, like if I could be an actress for just a moment that like, just, this is how he says it. He says, oh my, I can see how you'd be so concerned. And I just was like, on the inside, crawling, right? Mm -hmm. Like my skin is crawling. Really? Yeah. Really? You, I, I just, there was nothing we could do. Mm. Right? Like, they, they wouldn't tell us exactly where they were. They wouldn't, it just was, a, it was a hard, hard situation. Yeah. And so, I told, I told, tried to tell David, I said, listen, Mark's off his meds, clearly. I know that. And um, I want you to know that he's going to start having delusions. He's going to start thinking people are after him. He's going to start thinking you're after him. He's going to start thinking my mom is after him. And when he gets to that place, he's going to run and you're not going to be able to find him. So I just, I guess I'm telling you this. So hopefully you'll watch for him mm -hmm. more closely. And so um, 
the conversation ended and that was what March. So we hear nothing, nothing from them until or nothing of them until June. So three months go by and I'm pretty good at like holding things together, like in the Columbine instant, in the moment, I'm pretty good at holding things together, but we all have our breakdown, right? We always, all of us, we reach that breaking point. Mm -hmm. And mine was on a Sunday afternoon after I had too many mimosas. (laughs) 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 And I uh, took a two hour shower and over half of it was cold water. they none of them had the they just don't have the emotional capacity to be in the position I was in Hmm. and it doesn't it doesn't make me better than them that's not it it's Mm -hmm. just they can't bear that load Mm -hmm. I mean I think in every family there's always somebody who can just bear a really big load but I can tell you in that moment, I was so angry with my mom and so resentful. I didn't want to bear the load. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I didn't have a choice. You know, I mean, I love my brother. I love my mom. I was mad at her. You know, um, it was a, it was a really odd year, hmm. to say the least. Yeah. Yes. Oh. So, it was a really odd, odd year. Um, and, the, and the consulate was just so wonderful and eloquent and tried to do everything she could to help us. And, and she said, you know, this happens quite a bit, actually. And she's like, I'm quite impressed that you're actually willing to entertain helping them because most people get to this point with their family and they just say, I don't, there's nothing I can do. Mm. And they, they just they've done this so many times to us. We don't know, you know, we, we got to move on from it, but they, Ron and, and all of them had put themselves in such a bad place in this country. They, the embassy was getting calls about them skipping out on hotels, skipping out on meals. Um, Word was traveling very fast where they were that they were taking advantage of the people of Bolivia Mm. and it flat out told me your your brother and your mom are unsafe here they're unsafe here mm-hmm. of what they've done like it's a third is this a third world country like this right. isn't yeah yeah you don't get to do these things so anyways um we don't hear anything for what three months and on my way to work one day I get a call. No. Yeah. I get a call from a California number and I don't answer because I am tired of, um, <laughs> the IRS calls <laughs> Yeah, and the telemarketing calls. So I don't answer the phone and immediately following the phone call, I get a text message and it is this wonderful woman in California by the name of Natalie, who sends me a message that basically just says, My brother or my cousin is a dentist in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, 
and he has been walking by your brother who's living in the streets of Santa Cruz and he stopped to talk to him and he's wondering if there's something we can do to help your family. Wow. And I was like, what's he doing living in the streets of Bolivia? Right. Mm -hmm. And now they're in Santa Cruz. I don't know where that is, but you know, clearly not La Paz anymore. And, and I say, is there a woman with him? And she says, no, there's no one with him. He's been alone. He's been unclothed. Mm. Marcelo took him some clothes or found him some clothes or convinced him to put something on. And, and um, she sent me a picture of him. Mm. And it was, um, you know, he had lost probably 80 pounds of weight. He was kind of, he's a bigger guy. He's tall and bigger, mm-hmm. 80 pounds, dirty, dirty, just because he's living in the streets of Bolivia. He looks out of sorts, you know, he's mm-hmm. in that dark, that dark place, that place that we know his mind goes to. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I try to get a hold of the consulate that day. It was a Friday and I end up leaving a message with a guard at the embassy and I don't hear anything. And finally, Sunday, I hear, and she, and they decide, okay, we're going to send a contact. We have a contact in Santa Cruz. We'll send them over to where he is approximately. And uh, we'll try to see if we can find him. And they go to where he had been staying for two weeks, and he's gone. All of his stuff is gone, and he is gone. Mm. <sighs> And still no sign of my mom. So Tuesday rolls around. So now it was Friday, right? And so we're all panicked that he's living in the streets of Bolivia. Tuesday rolls around and I get another call from the contact in La Paz. And she says, we found your mom in Bolivia through a Facebook page. One of the nurses at the place, she's at a hospital. One of the nurses at the place sent a picture of her through Facebook asking if anyone knew this American woman and the consulate in La Paz recognized her. Mm. And that's Donna and here's her daughter's contact information. And that's who, you know, Mark is missing. So anyways, they find her and this woman in Santa Cruz, Nicole, she's like, you have to get here. Like it is like finding Finding Mark is going to be like finding a needle in a haystack. The homeless population here is very large, Mm. especially in the area he's in. You know, it's relatively mild winters there. So makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. So she's like, you have to get here. I am driving to work in my car, going to Denver. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like he's living on the streets of Bolivia. Like I need to go there like now, not like tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I turn around and I throw a handful of underwear in a suitcase and a handful of socks and just whatever out of my drawers, handful of this handful of that. And I throw it in a bag and I head to Denver and I call another brother of mine because I don't want to go to Bolivia alone. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of anxiety traveling 
a ton of anxiety traveling, especially alone and especially to a country I've never been to. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, oh my gosh. So I call my brother and I say to him, can you fly to Bolivia? He says, yeah, I guess. I'm like, well, here's the situation. And he'd kind of already known because I'd called the family and let them know that I'd gotten this other call from Natalie. And, and, and he's like, okay, well, when? I'm like, right now. He's like, when? Like, right now? I'm like, yes, like, right now. Like, I'm driving to the airport right now, and you need to meet me there, and we need to go. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, oh, oh, okay. So we meet at the airport. I had an awesome set of coworkers at the time who were just so nurturing, <sighs> provided me with cash from their bank accounts, like, mm. like, just because, you know, I was trying to get everything together to get these tickets to go. And they're like, you can pay me back when you get back. I mean, let me their sunglasses, all the stuff I forgot to pack. You know, he bought me a mat when my, one of my coworkers bought me a magazine. He's like, this helps my wife when we're traveling. Maybe it'll help you take your mind off of <laughs> people magazine. That's awesome. <laughs> Other people's problems. <laughs> oh. I text my husband at noon and I tell him I'm getting on a flight to Bolivia. And Kyle was like, what changed? And I was like, well, they found mom and she's not well. She's in a hospital and we don't know where Mark is and we need to get there to him Mm -hmm. or the better. Right. And then, you know, I make these swift decisions in these moments and then, you know, you're waiting for an, a flight and you have a layover in Texas that lasts, you know, a whole night. You got a lot of time to let your mind and your worries get to you. <laughs> <laughs> like, when what am I doing? <laughs> when you're in that waiting place, right? Just like in the yeah. doctor's just like in the Dr. Seuss book, nothing good comes out of that waiting place. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I was panicked. I mean, I was a mess. I was a mess. I was bawling. I was pacing the airport floors. I was on the phone with Rhonda and TJ, Jamie's grandmother. So Jamie's mom, Jamie's grandmother, praying, having them pray for me. Oh my gosh. I was so scared. Mm-hmm. Oh might be on that other side and whether or not we were going to be successful Mm. in finding him. Yeah. And so, um, you know, off we went and I was a mess, a mess, a mess, a mess the whole way there until we got there. And it was so weird. It was like, when we got there, I was like, game on, like, we got a mission here. Like we, we have to find him period. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll find him. We will find him. And when we got to Bolivia, Sunny, Sunny's like, sure, let's go to Bolivia. It's kind of like a vacation, right? Yeah. And we went to Bolivia at like 1030 at night, their time. And he's like, uh, um, like he is sheer panic. Like he was fine. Like he was fine when we were on our way there. It, thank God I had him because he's like, we're going to be fine, sis. Like, I don't worry. We're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. We're going to be fine. 
Don't you worry. You're going to get home to your boys. Don't you worry. You're going to get home. Yeah, I was going to say, for the listeners, you had how many children at this point? I had three children. Um, I had a, a barely two-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. Wow. Yeah. And I think that, I think that was the hardest part for me is I didn't get to say goodbye to them mm-hmm. or to tell them like, Hey, I've got to go do this and I'll be back. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, obviously that was very impactful on me and, and on them and my husband, you know, I didn't really get to say goodbye to him either. He had to learn about it through a text message because it was all the time I had while I was trying to book tickets <laughs> to Bolivia. So, you know, Sunny was really my level-headed, very much a saving grace for me prior to getting there. And then uh, cards kind of turned a little bit. Uh, once he saw the conditions of where Mark was, felt very very anxious. I mean, he would have, (laughs) I remember we're in the taxi and they're kind of briefing us like, Hey, don't do this. Don't, don't take taxi rides unless the hotel calls you for them. Americans get robbed here all the time. Uh, Don't carry a purse. If you do have it be on a strap that's around your chest, you know, they were just giving us pointers. Like Mm -hmm. these are the things you should watch for while you're here. And, and so I could just see him turning whiter, whiter, whiter. And he's like, well, we, we, we have to find him tonight. Cause we can't, he can't sleep out here in this place. You know, there's a large homeless population. There's a lot of drug abuse. And he was just like, we can't, we can't do this. We can't, he can't stay another night out here. We have to go all night. We have to look all night. And, and the lady that Nicole, the consular, uh, from the U.S. Embassy had literally just told us she's lived there 20 years. She doesn't go out at night after dark unless she takes a taxi cab driver with her who she's known for like 15 years. Mm. This Mm -hmm. is somebody who's lived in La Paz a majority of her life or not La Paz, Santa Cruz, a majority of her life. And she doesn't go out at night. Yeah. We stick out like sore thumbs. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? So mm-hmm. I remember Sonny and I having this moment where he's like, we can't, we can't leave him out here. And I was like, we can't search for him right. out here. Like if we get injured or hurt or lost or something happens to us, guess what? Nobody comes home. Right. I can't take that risk. Mm-hmm. I can't. So I'm sorry. He's like, you didn't tell me it was this bad. And I was like, oh, I had no idea it was this bad. I mm. mean, I knew it was bad, but I'd never been to Bolivia before. Mm. <laughs> I didn't know. You know, yeah. and in the marketplace area where there's, you know, maybe a higher crime. It was hard to see that, right? So neither of us sleep that night. I mean, to say the least, we end up going to visit my mom that night in the hospital just to see her, to let her know we're there. Uh, the nurses were so sweet, you know, just, you know, hugging me and hugging Sunny and hugging her and so glad, so happy. 
you know, they value family hmm. there so much, right? They place, mm-hmm. they place a lot of value on their families. So I think that's why they wanted, everyone was so helpful and um, was so thankful. Anyways, uh, so we wake up the next day and we go to the embassy and we basically begin our search for Mark because we know my mom's safe or at least in a place where she's not going to be harmed, right? And we start printing up papers uh, with his picture on them, you know, just so we can run the town and try and see if anyone's seen him or give us any pointers. Natalie, back in California, whose family lives in Santa Cruz, she's helping me on Facebook. She's post, she had posted on Facebook and I'm at the embassy. I'm trying to get internet access on my phone. I had had my husband call, try to get everything switched over with our provider. And so I'm trying to get access to be able to use my phone while we're in the streets of Bolivia. And uh, Sonny decides, well, he's just sitting there. He's like, well, I'll go out with the police. The embassy police have agreed to go out with us. I'll go out with them and maybe we can start looking for Mark. And I'm like, that's a good idea. I'll stay here. I'll try to get access on my phone. And um, I have no luck. I mean, I literally am getting like Facebook messages, but I cannot make any international calls from my phone. And I, for some reason, that was a huge security blanket for me. It's so funny how in those, those moments of like, um, like this, the situation, like what makes you feel secure, Mm. Uh, you know, and for me it's food and apparently my cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) Working properly. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I always knew the food one. I've had that since I was a child, but the cell phone one was new to me. Um, (laughs) so we, I eventually just give up because Sonny comes back and he's like, they all speak Spanish. Nobody speaks English. We're asking people, or I think the guards are asking people if they've seen him. The people are pointing in one direction and the guards are walking us in another. <laughs> He's like, they're not even like, they're pointing that way. Shouldn't we go that way? Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, but maybe they're pointing that way because they saw him last week that way. So mm. you might not want to go there if he was there last week. I don't know. <laughs> Do you speak any Spanish? He's like, no, I can't understand anything they're saying. And I'm like, okay, well. <laughs> I'm like, that's so helpful. You know, I'm laughing in the moment, but it was intense in the moment. Oh, it sure. was definitely not lighthearted and, uh, and all of that. But so eventually I give up. We all pile into this tiny Nissan Sentra. One of the embassy guards, now we had to pay the embassy guards to help us search, but who Mm -hmm. cares? We wanted the security of having them with us, right? Right. But we had to pay one of them because he was a taxi cab driver on his off times. So we paid him to taxi, drive us a little bit, you know, because the embassy was further out. So drive us into the marketplace area. So we park and we start just hitting the streets, trying to pass out these flyers with Mark's picture, ask whoever we can, like, you know, if they've seen him. 
and the guards are like very specific stay with us do not go off course do not stay close to us we don't want anything happening right mm -hmm. and my brother just he couldn't do that right he's like i don't know he's like clear <laughs> down the street the guards are like point like well, the, ma the, the, the main guard's like pointing, no, go, go get that guy. He, we stay with him because he's all over the place. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, he's, I mean, he's a machine. He's like handing out flyers. I mean, I, I can't even tell you how quickly he was handing those out. I was like, holy moly, you are moving quicker than I've ever seen you move in my life. <laughs> little, little, just like making it rain flyers, um, trying to find Mark. And I knew pretty well before we left the embassy. Actually, this was so weird. One of the Nicole, the consular, said to me, "I I have a feeling we're gonna find Mark today." I'm like, "Well, wait a minute. Like, you have a feeling? Like, did you have get some information? Like, did someone tell you?" She's like, yeah. "No, I just have a feeling." And I was like, "Interesting." And so then one of the guards said that to us too. I have a feeling we're going to find him today. Hmm. And I was like, well, that's cool. And I appreciate the positive, yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> so let's go with that. Cause that yeah. was perfect. And so we're walking around and people are not recognizing his photo from the black and white printout at all. And so I pull up the pictures on my phone that Natalie had sent me and I start showing them. And fortunately in one of those pictures, he's sitting down on the ground and he has, he has full, full length. You can see his legs and everything. And he had a bandage wrapped around his foot and you could tell it was injured. And as soon as I started, we started showing that photo of him with mm -hmm. that bandage on his foot people instantly started recognizing him. Mm. Well, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I saw him on Wednesday. I saw him on Friday. I mean, all of these, like every little, every person after that, that we showed that picture to every, they were like, yes, yeah, I've seen him. I've seen. Him. And as soon as that started happening, I was like, Oh, I was like, Oh my gosh, we, we are going to find him today. Yeah. Oh my, oh my gosh. We are, they are seeing him. People are seeing him and they're recognizing him. Yeah. And each person we talk to has seen him sooner than we, than the person before. Yeah. And I like started to have this like permanent glow. I felt like a, I felt like I was on fire. Like, I don't know. Like it was a very exuberant feeling. And I told Sunny, I'm like, we're going to find him today. Like we are. Hmm. And we, a guard had stopped and pulled these two worker guys who are wheelbarrowing stuff around this marketplace. And this marketplace, just to kind of give you, it's like kind of not like fancy cobblestone, but like old cobblestone, like, you know, they're cutting chickens heads and they're throwing the parts into the street. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's like, you know, all these beautiful fruits laying out on a table next to that. And then, you know, like it's, it is this, it, it was different. It was a totally different world than mm -hmm. anything I've ever seen. Ever. Yeah. I mean, most of the children are running around barefoot. 
you know, very hardworking culture that where you're, you work with your family and your children are right there. Like you're literally breastfeeding and selling your produce. And, Mm. you know, it was a very different atmosphere. And he pulls, this guard pulls these two guys, these two workers over and he starts asking him question, them questions. And they start waving people over asking, Hey, you come over here. Let me ask you. And before I wish I had snapped a photo, it, the photo will always just be in my mind because I, in the moment, I never in the moment when I'm experiencing something wonderful, intense or anything, do I ever remember to take a photo? I, I just don't, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that's probably good. Right. Cause it means right. I'm like absorbing the, the you're very in the moment. Yes. <laughs> sure. So there's a positive quality to that, but yeah. At one point, like, I'm not kidding, 20 people from this marketplace in Bolivia are like, yeah, I saw him today. Yeah, I saw him this morning. He was walking this way. We see him every morning. We, he walks the marketplace every morning. He, you know, we'll eat. We'll see him drinking a soda. We'll see, you know, like they all we're trying to help us Mm. without even, I mean, you could tell that they were in such pain for us. Like just in their eyes, I could see their like Mm. sorrow for us Mm -hmm. and and it could just tell that they were truly empathizing with what it would be like in another country where you don't speak the language, where you don't look like anybody around you. Hmm. trying to find somebody that you love Mm -hmm. so dearly you know and that was amazing to me yeah because I don't think that always happens when people come to our country Hmm. you know Hmm. or I don't think you know what I mean it just was an amazing moment where I felt like it was humans it didn't matter the culture or yes Mm -hmm. it was like the universe like had connected us all yeah right and like in all languages love is the same yes mm-hmm. you know and so it's just powerful was, to feel that like to actually feel it is amazing yeah I have never felt that before in my life and I will tell you that for years growing up I was raised Christian. I was raised in a very Christian home. I went to a Christian school my whole life. I believe in Jesus. I love God. I always growing up was envious of those people that said that they felt God's presence. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like for me in that moment, that was my that was my gift. Like that I knew. Mm. I knew I was right where I was supposed to be. I knew it. Yeah. And that was the start that, that happening. And then kind of the events that the, the remainder of the events that triggered uh, the rest of the time in Bolivia is what I attribute to um, my forgiveness of my mother, because there was so much resentment and, um, anger towards her for so many years, mm-hmm. um, that was built, 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 
built up and now they were in Bolivia and I was having to risk my life. I felt like I was having to risk my life, Mm -hmm. pull her and Mark out of a bad situation. And so obviously still, you know, let's pile on the resentment here. Right. Mm. Um, And I don't think anyone would have blamed me for feeling that way. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think that moment helped me to have forgiveness for her Mm. so that I could heal and so that I could move on and fulfill my purpose Mm. in life. Mm -hmm. I think I was capable of doing that until I forgave her. It's powerful. I really don't think I could. There was no way I was going to be able to impact anyone else without forgiving her because Mm. she was a large part of my childhood. Yeah. And what I associated as a piece of me because I was always an extension of her, as you mentioned. Right. That is exactly how it was growing up for me. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, so obviously like this group of people and I tell, I'm bouncing on the streets of Bolivia, of Santa Cruz. I mean, bouncing, like I, you would have thought I was there like as a cheerleader for like a professional team. (laughs) Cause I was just like, you know, I mean, I was crazy. I was, I don't know what happened. It's all that just, it just gave me energy. Like every person, every, like every single person that's seen him, it just was like, Oh my gosh. Like it's just a whole new level of excitement for me. Um, all the while sunny sunny's personality is more like oh this is not looking good as the hours drag by right (laughs) (laughs) so I think we were a good balance for each other um but we end up stopping at a park in Bolivia that they have security guards at the park and the security guards recognized him Mm. and um they're like yes we saw him today we did see him today And they were, you know, they didn't know which direction he went or anything like that. But uh, they were like, we thought he was local, like, like he's going to attack us. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. He's not going to hurt anybody. Trust me. That's one thing I know for a fact. He's not going to hurt anybody. So I wrote a note on a piece of paper that I found in my bag and left a dumb, dumb sucker that I had, thankfully, from our bank that I keep in my purse you know, as I need these for, I have three boys. Yeah. I need bribery. I need bribery. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I leave the sucker thinking, oh my gosh, we're going to walk away from here. And then he's going to walk up and then he's not going to want to stay with these guys. But maybe if he reads a note for me, yeah, maybe he'll realize we're here looking for him and he'll stay put and they can call us. So all the while I'm getting these Facebook tips on my phone, right. From Natalie, who's forwarding me or she's text messaging me. I did have text messaging, just couldn't make any phone calls. Mm. So I'm getting these text messages from her on all the tips that people are putting on Facebook and I kept seeing them, but they just didn't register to me. She kept saying quattro a neo, quattro a neo. And I was just like, yeah, quattro a neo. I don't know what that means, you know? And so Uh, We stop right after talking to the guards and we're trying to decide where are we going to look next? 
where are we going to go to find him? And we're trying to decide that. And I look at the head guard and I tell him like, you've been talking to everyone here. Where do you think we need to go? And he says to me, yo no sé, which means I don't know in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I, even I know that I took very little Spanish, but I do remember that <laughs> phrase. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, no, you don't get to say that. Mm -hmm. Think mm. about, like, I was just like, think, where do we go next? And he took a really long pause. It felt like forever. And I was like looking down at my phone, just, you know, cause here are the people pleaser in me. I don't, I put pressure on this guy and now I don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to look him in the face while he's trying to decide. <laughs> totally, because I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. You know, like, like, <laughs> I look at my phone and he says, quattro a neo. And I look down at my phone and literally, I'm not kidding, Quattro Neo pops up again from Natalie. Like, oh my gosh. And I was like, yes, yes, and yes, and let's go. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's go now. Yeah. And um, we hop into the car. We're all piled, five of us, big <laughs> security guards yeah. in a Nissan Sentra. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder to myself, how do people travel in that small vehicle with that many people for like an hour or yeah. two or whatever? But anyway, so we all pile in and I'm in the middle seat and I got a guard to my left and I've got Sonny to my right and I say to Sonny, Quattro Neo is the fourth, now I know, the fourth ring of the marketplace. Mm. And and I say to Sonny, you look out the right and I'll look out the left and see if you find him. And we both start doing that. And we come around this curve and I see this man laying on the floor, the ground. And I can only see the back of his head and his hair is long and kind of, um, I don't know what's it called when people try to twist their hair and beeswax. Mm, like dreadlocks. Uh, yes, dreadlocks. Mm -hmm. Totally some short dreadlocks back here. And I'm like, oh my God, that is him. That is him. And he looks at us, but he looks at us upside down. And you know what it looks like when you look at sunside upside down. They look a little odd, right? Yeah. <laughs> out of place. Uh -huh. And he looks at us and I'm like, wait, no, no, no. Uh, uh And then he looks away and he looks back at us and Sonny's like, that's him. That is him. And him and I are like bouncing in the back of the car, like <laughs> ready to like open the door, get us out. And the yeah. guards are like, calm down, calm down, calm down. We're like, that's him, that's him, that's him. And so we're like, oh my God, that's him. And so they're like, calm down. <laughs> you stay here <laughs> you stay here and we're like 
we're out of the car, right? And yeah. they're like, you stay here. And we're like, all right, all right. They wanted to make sure we didn't startle him. Of course, mm. right? Like, let's make sure he's okay and he's not going to attack us. And so they walk up to him and then they look back at us and they, they're like, is that, is that him? And we're like, yeah, that's him mm. for sure. And um, we walk up to him and he is laying on the ground and he opens his eyes and he looks at Sonny and he's like, Sonny. And then he closes his eyes and goes back to sleep like he's dreaming. Mm. Like he's having a delusion that we're there. Mm -hmm. like, close, like we had to shake him. We're like, no, we're really here. I know yes. it's hard to believe because this is really far from Colorado, but <laughs> we are here. <laughs> oh my gosh. We are here to bring you home. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I have a picture of Sonny and he, he hates the picture, but I love the picture of them because when he picked Mark up from the ground and he put his arm around him, you could just tell all of that like brotherly love mm -hmm. is just captured in that photo mm -hmm. of like, oh my God, I was so freaking worried about you. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was so freaking worried about you. <laughs> and, uh, and that he couldn't believe we found him alive, you know? And so, uh, Sonny was bawling, you know, and, and I think cause we had role reversal, I think in, in this moment, he was bawling and just hugging Mark over and over and over again. <laughs> and I was jumping for joy. Like I had just won the state championship. <laughs> I was jumping the street. I threw my arms around every guard that was in the car with us. There was a, there was a stranger that had pulled up uh, in a Mercedes that had apparently sent in some sort of tip to the Facebook page, Facebook uh, message. Uh -huh. I, I kissed him. <laughs> does your husband know this or this is this the first time he'll know um, oh yeah he knows he knows i full on admitted i i gave him a i gave him a big old smooch on the cheek i mean i was just awesome. i was like oh man thank god for everybody here like yeah. oh my gosh you know it mm. was ah oh, it forever marked my heart, girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reprioritized everything for me. Yeah. And it not only did that, but it instilled a confidence in myself that I am capable mm. of like far greater things than I've ever boxed myself in. Yeah. And I don't know why God chose me to be the one to go there. I'm really glad he did because my life is my course over the last year and a half has been so much better than what I was giving myself credit for.
for. Mm, yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's obviously still a journey, right? Mm -hmm. We all have moments of weakness and even in transition. And I think it maybe even especially in transitions like these, mm -hmm. you have these moments of like, where am I going? You know, like, yeah. where is this going to go? Right. You know, and can I feel, can I feel the, can I fill these shoes? You know, can I, what do I, what, what next? Right. Mm hmm. But sometimes I think we don't have to know all, no. all the answers, you know? Well, uh, yes, okay. I think so. I think you're right. I think sometimes it ruins it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> what, if, what if you could see a picture? Like, what if you literally could see, okay, this is going to happen to you. Like if someone, okay, let's just take this situation, for example. Mm-hmm. If someone had told me five years ago that I was going to end up in Bolivia, <laughs> fearing for my life and fearing for what Ron might do, right? Mm -hmm. And and wondering if I was, you know, if, if someone told me I was going to be there doing that and I was going to try and bring my mother, you know, I would bring my mother and, and brother back from Bolivia, I I, I might be really scared. I might not want to head in that direction, right? Right. I might do everything I can to prevent that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's true. That's so true. Well, and never in a million years could you have thought up something like this either. Like we're right. so limited in our capacity <laughs> to say, I have to experience this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to come out of it knowing what the heck I'm freaking made of. And it's right. going to be hard as hell, but it's going to be so amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to go. Yeah. No way. Well, gosh, I'm like, I, I, I like when you were telling the story, I was trying to, think about what Nick would be saying to me. If I was oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I missed such a vital point in this story. So when I was waiting, I we had a layover in Panama city prior to getting to Bolivia. And I said to Kyle, cause keep in mind, I'm a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. I did not with my husband on this. I mean, he kind of had an idea of what was going on. And I kind of said to him, Hey, I think someone's going to have to go there to get mm -hmm. him. Yeah. To find him. We had mentioned that there had been discussions. So it wasn't complete surprise. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I texted him, you know, I just texted him. I'm, I'm going to be flying to Bolivia. Right. <laughs> like today. And um, when I was in Panama city, I called him to tell him that we made it to the layover in Panama city and that we were boarding the plane to Bolivia and we were talking and I say to him on the phone, did I make the right decision? And my husband is like, sometimes he's like swallowing a bottle of really bad and bitter tasting truth serum. <laughs> Cause he says to me, I don't know. I don't have a clue if you made the right decision. Hmm. And it 
made, I mean, talk about being in a nervous situation and then to hear that and, and rightly so, right? I mean, he knew all the details of the consulate had told us about their safeties and danger and they've pissed a lot of people off and they've not paid people and, you know, people, it, it was, just, it was a bad situation. So he was just being truth, honest, honest, honest. So I get off the phone with him and I'm just like, it's like I'm swallowing knives, right? Mm. Hearing him, it's like, oh my God, I made the wrong decision and I didn't even check with him and now he's unhappy with me. <laughs> you know, all these things are running through my head. And so Natalie texts me, Corn Miller from California, who's cousin had originally told us that Mark was there mm -hmm. and she says I hear that I hear that you are on your way to Bolivia is it true and I was like hesitant to respond because I didn't want to tip Ron off mm. that we were coming there because we I knew that if I know Ron he has a very abrasive personality if we showed up there and he found out he would have tried to stop it, right? Mm. Like, I just, I, I just know his personality. And so I was very hesitant to share with anybody that that could get leaked out. And I, I, I texted her back and I said, yes, it's true. And then the next text I sent to her, I, I, I told her, I think, I'm so freaking scared. Or I'm so terrified. Or I'm something, you know, I forget. I, I sent her a message It was like, I'm just going to be flat out vulnerable to this woman right now. Yeah. And she's going to just have to deal with whatever. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, I need to offload this and you're the person. So let yeah. me just to you. I think you can handle it. <laughs> she texts me back and she says, don't be, you'll be fine. And you've made the absolute right decision mm, that was amazing <laughs> and it was like i i needed that yeah i absolutely needed her to say that mm. and to reassure me you know and and my husband you know on his end he's probably thinking oh my gosh you know we've got three children who knows if she's coming back home? You know, he's thinking probably worst case scenario, you know, mm -hmm. and wondering what's going to happen or if, you know, I'm going to get held because of all the debt they've accrued there, you know, whatever, you know, you never know when you go to another country, you know, you don't know what the expectations are there and what situations you're putting yourself in if bad decisions right. have been made. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and his worry was, was I going to be responsible for their bad decision making? Right. He had emailed the consulate, like, is my wife going to be responsible for, you know, any of these things that they've done? And so, um, anyways, that, that was a very vital part of the story because honestly, it gave me such strength, even mm. to hear a stranger who I've never met before. Yeah. That, um, was, it was, it was powerful as much, much needed. Yes. Uh, so. Wow. So tell us, like, what happened? So you brought him home and... Yeah, so, um, well, you know, what's crazy is that on the day that we found him, we had to let the consulate know 
or consular know by 3.30 who was getting on a plane to fly home, I think like five days later, right? Like we had to let her know far in advance. She's like, we got to know today who we're buying tickets for. So at, through the course of the day, Sunny and I actually thought that one of us was going to have to go home with mom and accompany her home. And one of us was going to have to stay and search for Mark if we didn't find him. Mm-hmm. And so we literally, so on, actually the day that we were searching for him, we found him at like 3.05. So we found him just in time so that we all could travel together Wow! on, on the same flights home. And what's incredible about that is Mark, Mark and I both had godparents that were dedicated growing up and Mark's godparents had been on the phone praying with a brother of mine for about 45 minutes and literally like a right around the same time he hung up that phone call, we found Mark, Wow! which is just really cool, right? Really, really cool. Um, so we get Mark checked in. Everything just kind of worked in our favor. We checked him into a Benito Many clinic in Santa Cruz. They were like, okay, we need to get him home. Normally we would require someone stays 14 days. We're going to make an exception here and just, you know, start him on very low medication just to help keep him calm and, and not feel uh, worried or paranoid. Mm-hmm. And, we'll do all these things. They cleaned him up. We went back to see him and um, I'll give you this photo because I think it's a great photo um, for the past because it just speaks volumes about the happiness that was in that room. So they clean him up, cut his hair, bathe him, shave off all his scruff and they leave this little like stash, which was kind of interesting. Um, and so to see him, you know, he, it was so funny. Like he, so we had, to, I mean, there was a ton of stuff that happened in between there. He'd broken his leg. We had to, we went to the Benito Mini. Then they were like, oh no, we can't treat his leg here. We're a mental clinic. So you got to take him somewhere else for his leg first, then bring him back here. So we ended up going all around town trying to get that part sorted out. And, um, he, uh, we get all the while he's, you know, kind of mumbling things because he's paranoid schizophrenic, right? So he's mumbling things, but he still had a sense of humor intact and he was, we could joke with him and we, um, we told him that, that the, uh, his favorite movie growing up was Beetlejuice. We would literally rent it almost every Friday night growing up for Blockbuster. (laughs) And so we, we, we decided to name, um, his, uh, bringing him home and finding him Operation Beetlejuice. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So so he thought that was just the funniest thing. And he had a sense of humor intact and he still had at moments some light in his eyes. So it was, um, very reassuring for us that he was going to be okay traveling home. Mm -hmm. My mom, my mom was a, a quite a bit difficult. She was very weak. She wasn't eating very much. She was all out of sorts. She just was, you know, just super anxious. Um, so anyways, this clinic was so helpful, helped just made a lot of exceptions for Mark and ensured that we could have the smoothest trip, smoothest trip home as possible. 
And it was like one of the first times in my life I didn't stress over what everyone around me was thinking of me. Here I am in an airport with hundreds of people and, um, you know, they need to lie down and I'm lying them on the floor, making them a bed on the floor. Like, mm-hmm. it maybe sounds silly, but like, I'm not giving a crap about what anybody thinks about other than how comfortable are they right now? Mm-hmm. I don't care about everybody else, which, you know, when you're a people pleaser, you do care about all that. You do right. normally. Yeah. So anyway, so the trip home was hard, but I, I, I think it was long. It was like, we were dropped off at the airport. Like it was like a 24 hour all around thing, nonstop going, yeah. you know, waiting in places to, to get other areas. But you know, on that airplane, I looked over at my mom on one of the last flights back, connecting us back to Denver. I remember looking at my mom and just realizing that I, I was supposed to be her daughter, mm-hmm. you know? Wow. Yeah. And all that resentment and anger that I had for her, it melted for me. Hmm. it just melted and I don't know exactly what or why or you know what thought popped into my head or I think it was just like I told you I needed to forgive her Mm -hmm. to become who I meant to be right I need to yeah and so she was so worried one of us was going to abandon her or leave her obviously because she was abandoned in a another country by somebody who she trusted to take care of her and Mark. Um, so she was super anxious about all the flights home. And I kept promising her, I'm going with you. We're going together. We're going to mm-hmm. get there. So we're going to be fine. Right. Well, so we get into the States into doubt or into Houston. And I had called the detective that I reported my mom missing um, two months prior to that detective. And he lifted the missing persons report. However, we did not think to lift the missing persons report for Mark. So when we got to U.S. Customs, I was in possession of a missing person. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Oh, man. (laughs) And not only that, I was in possession of a missing person. I was with the person who was affiliated with him being missing, my mom. Yeah. Yeah. So So here I I am promising my mom, promising her, promising promising her that we're all getting on this flight together. And guess what? Mark and I don't get to leave immigration. So Sonny and my mom go through fine. I think, okay, I'm going to get there. I'm going to show them the letter from the consulate. I'm going to tell them the story. Like they're going to let us go. Right. No, no, not exactly. So we sat in immigration for a long period and then they moved us to a holding cell where they probably, um, well, not in the room we were in, but then the room within that room where they hold criminals mm-hmm. like where it has like a toilet and like a lock, a door you lock. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. where, where you detain somebody who you're really worried about. So Mark and I are sitting there and, and we're being drilled by Emerson. And I was so proud of myself. I was so strong in that moment, not leading up to, I was a hot mess, but you know, in that moment I was strong when we were in Bolivia and, and I could, I could manage all of it. And I had all these notes. I was organized. I was, you know, and then we get here and we start getting all these questions answered and, and kind of are the questions asked and we're being drilled and I lost it. I mean, we were stuck there for three or four hours and I just started bawling. Mm-hmm. I mean, bawling. I was terrified. I was like, we're never going to make it home. Like I'm in possession of a missing person and you don't believe my story. I know this story sounds crazy. I don't think the guard, I don't think he believed a word of it. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, yeah, uh huh, sure. Uh, (laughs) And so I remember Mark so sweetly, like reaching over and being like, it's okay, Tina. We're going to be okay. (laughs) We're going to make it home. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so anyways they, they do end up getting a hold of the detective in denver and, and the houston police department show up and um, they're like you can come out here and make a phone call you're not a prisoner like you can come out here and i'm like i know what the sign said no phone. <laughs> immigration. i'm just trying to follow the rules <laughs> right <laughs> and they're like no 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 no. you're allowed to make phone calls you've not done anything wrong they're like just get out here and make your phone call and so uh anyways it's uh so we did we did make it home and um obviously first steps was just getting everybody uh healthy and evaluated and uh back to um as normal of a life as possible right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think for Mark you know he like I said finding that balance for him where he's not over medicated Mm -hmm. I think this this whole event was very helpful in that in 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 not just my dad being aware but I think the rest of his siblings being aware of when watching for when the signs of him being over-medicated are, are showing up mm. yeah, and, and recognizing that and advocating for him mm-hmm. right? and saying, Hey, this doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And so I think if anything, well, there are a lot of good things that came out of it, but one of the, one of the greatest things I think that came out of it is that um, all of us, being aware of that and, and, and truly being an advocate for Mark. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, if we yeah. start to see it go that way, um, there'll be a lot of conversations about it. You know, mm-hmm. nobody's going to let it slide anymore. You know, no one's going to be like, Oh, well, dad's taking care of it. No, listen, we can see that things aren't balanced for him. Right. You know, let's help him. Mm-hmm. To have the best quality of life that he can have. Right. We all have a, a say in that. We yeah. all can help him with that. So it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, you need to write a book. 
we've been on here for two hours and I feel like I still have a million questions and like I want to know so much more about it all holy moly what a story to be told I mean this is like the dynamic of the story, everything that happened, I'm like on the edge of my seat wanting to know what the heck, but then I think I'm going to have to have you come back for a part two or something because okay, there's this whole other piece of mm-hmm. your inner journey, your being able to come to a place where you could forgive your mother. And it's, it's, I mean, I can identify with you on a very, very small scale because my mom disappeared. At one point, we knew where she was, and we had conversations, me and my husband, about if I was going to go there and show up and try and find her. It's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> we have this in common. Um, <laughs> but I think. So when you talk about forgiving her, I can completely just resonate with that so much because I think when things happen, we have this, we have this thing within ourselves of like, I need to hold on to all of the bad things that this person did to me or all of the the negative experiences. And it's an either or thing rather than a, I can acknowledge all the things that happened and I can still love them. And, and I know for me, that's been a huge journey. And I hear that message. Uh, mm-hmm. And I want to know more about your process for sure. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, absolutely. I will be willing to share anything. Because in the last year, like I've said, holding on to this stuff has not benefited me in any way and it's not helped anyone else. And I think it's just so helpful when you have someone, at least when I've had somebody go there for me, like with their story mm-hmm. and then a light bulb goes off in my head, like, Oh my gosh, like I'm not alone. Yeah. Like, ah, you've been through this too. Like, you know, it just, gosh, there's so much power that comes from that. You yes. know, I never, I mean, I was always so ashamed to talk about what happened to Mark at Columbine. I mean, to talk about, you know, to admit that anything bad happened to me as a child or that things were as volatile as they really were. I didn't mm-hmm. ever want to admit that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I didn't want to admit it to other people or I didn't want to admit it to myself. I didn't want to pity myself or what, but I think you're right. You can acknowledge those things bad that happened and you can still love them mm-hmm. and forgive them mm-hmm. and move on. Right. You know, you can, mm-hmm. you totally can. So we will have to have you back. You said at the very beginning and I, and I think, gosh, this rings so true. You said no one or well, you said no one benefits from not sharing. And so this is for your healing, but it's also for other people. And I couldn't agree with you more that we need to know we're not alone. We need to hear other people's stories. We need, this is connecting. It's, it's healing all around. But you also said that you are proof that you can grow from pain. And 
I love that. Hmm. I didn't even know I said that. <laughs> <laughs> you did. I, I wrote it down. See? <laughs> well, you know, when you decide to be vulnerable, you just say stuff, right? <laughs> that rings true. No, it's so true. Like, I, I am proof of that, you know, that it doesn't matter how much you have suffered your entire life, right? And there could be, that could be multiple different facets, right? And, and it can be different degrees and different levels. And I tell you, for one person, it might be more than it is for another. It doesn't matter, right? Mm. I don't know. It doesn't matter how hard you've had it. What matters is what you decide to do with it. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that's what I think. I don't, I think, yeah. you know, it's so interesting. You'll look at life, right? You'll see someone go through an instance that just destroys them, right? And, and I'm not talking about people that, you know, you have mental, um, mental imbalances or, you know, genetics working against you. Like, but it's mm -hmm. interesting how, but when you see people, when people, some have just a will to rise above mm -hmm. or some can't, right? And they just stay here. And I think at least for me, I've been fortunately blessed with an ability to always look inward. Mm. It's what drew me to psychology as a undergrad program. Yeah. I love to think about um, how I could improve. I have been a sucker for self-improvement my whole life. <laughs> That's awesome. But you know, it's, um, you can, you can come from any amount of pain. And, um, what's great about that is that the more pain I think that you endured, the bigger impact you can have on those around you. Mm -hmm. If you, if you can get there, if you can allow it to yeah. work through, wiggle its way through there. Yeah. You know? totally. And allow your, and allow yourself to be you, which is a very lengthy process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's true. It's but been a very lengthy process. Yeah. So, so okay. I'm going to ask the two questions. Which I already feel like you've, you've probably answered numerous times, but I'll bring you back to them. So the first one is, is what do you feel has been the most vital to your growth? Hmm. I mean, in recent, I think what's been most vital to my growth is started with Bolivia because I think I mentioned this, but when I came back from Bolivia, I realized that I'm capable of so much more than I could have ever imagined that if that, that good things could come from my hard work, right? Mm -hmm. That I could take pride and that I could be proud of myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that I could be proud of myself mm -hmm. for, 
for that accomplishment. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know why I took that, but, <laughs> but it did. I, you know, I, I, um, it, it really propelled me into thinking about my impact on the world and what do I want to leave, right? And I know I'm meant to be a mom, but I've been filling this pool for a long time that I'm meant for something bigger. Mm-hmm. And just that, being a mom is very important to me. That's not to say yeah. that it isn't, but right. that there was something bigger for me, that there was something there that I was supposed to be doing and I knew it I just didn't know what it was and I think going to Bolivia really instilled in me that yes you're right like you are capable and you are strong and you are funny (laughs) (laughs) you are funny (laughs) and people like you Mm -hmm. (laughs) but that that's not the most important thing yeah right Mm-hmm. So that kind of propelled me into this. I mean, I really pulled back the reins. Holy moly! I mean, that happened in Bolivia. It marked my heart, and I'm a, I left an excellent paying job in Denver that I think most people would die for the schedule and the pay. And I left all of that behind because I just knew in my heart, like, you need to go you know, like you need, like, this is time. And so that just, that, that situation just kind of shoved me into this, this, um, where I'm at right now, where I've just been kind of, you know, I've been in some of your courses and I've been digging really deep and asking myself a lot of hard questions, mm-hmm. um, having difficult conversation with my husband, having, <clears throat> difficult conversations with myself um you know it's really it's it's where I'm supposed to be I know that I don't know where it's going exactly but it's where I'm supposed to be (laughs) that's okay that's all right so you knew before you knew you knew you were made for something bigger but maybe you just didn't believe that you were Mm -hmm. capable now you do you're just looking for the answers, trying to figure out and understand what that is. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to have you at the women's retreat. It's going to be so good. (laughs) All right. Yay. I'm so excited. Um, what going away from this, you know, uh, for those who have been listening, what is the takeaway? What do you, what is the thing that you want to make sure that people know? So obviously like this answer would always, I would think would change for somebody, right? Like what I tell you today may be different than what I would want to tell you, you know, 10 years from now or or Mm -hmm. even next week, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty swift to just move right along. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I guess for that I would say to be compassionate that you never know what someone is dealing with internally whether that be something that is a 20 year old wound or whether that be something that's a fresh wound from yesterday Mm -hmm. 
that your kindness and your graciousness and your ability to make somebody laugh could be detrimental to them, could be vital to their existence. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that especially um, includes yourself. Yeah. That grace and that compassion and that forgiveness it is so important that you do that for yourself and other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. That's what, that's what mine would be today. <laughs> I love it. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yes. Thank Tomorrow you. might be eat more chocolate. I don't know. <laughs> or less gluten. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not funny. always it's not always so deep <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> oh no I love that though I love it because I was picturing when you were telling the story about uh putting your mom and your brother on the floor and making them comfortable in the airport like I I could like imagine myself seeing you there and not having any clue whatsoever what the heck you had all just been through you know what I mean right no right right yeah no no clue I mean didn't even have time to process it right well no yeah and no onlookers would know they're yeah Mm, yeah no yeah so anyways I could go on and on this is Amazing. So I want to say thank you for taking a big step and for being brave and sharing with us. I thank feel you. like we're better because of it. So thank you so yeah. much. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so, so thankful. Um, I was nervous, but I was, I'm thankful for the opportunity. Yeah. I, uh, I got to do it. I got to move forward. Yeah. I can't hold on to it anymore. (laughs) This is big. It's big. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful I met you. Jamie's always said that I remind you of, or that I remind her of you. Yeah. (laughs) I could see that. We are very similar (laughs) in our stories. It's like, what the heck? what the heck yeah oh my gosh yes so I'm thankful thank you for taking the time and inviting me wow 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 (laughs) were you on the edge of your seat the way that I was I was just blown away by Christina and her light and her heart and holy moly what a story she believes if you are given a set of experiences especially if you can see a theme you have an obligation to share in these experiences so others might seek comfort, empowerment, strength, or an ability to grieve because of what you shared. I couldn't agree more. We are so blessed she shared with us. This is her first time sharing her story publicly and there is no doubt this won't be her last. 
Just a heads up to check out the photo for the podcast, which is of Christina and her brother Mark, and it was taken the day after he was found in the Benito Mini Clinic. So much is captured in this amazing photo, and when you know the story behind it, wow, it just makes it that much more powerful. If you would like to connect with Christina, you can find her on Facebook at Christina Taylor Schnellman. And watch for her blog that will be launching soon. I will drop that link in the comments as soon as it's available. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth, grow constantly, rise above, and always know you are not on this journey alone. See you next time.